0: Our names and where we live, and power decides here to condemn or forgive. Ow! 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 Power buries our dreams under a pile of lies. Power hates to see hope shining in our eyes. When power reigns and plays its games Power kills the strongest wills But someone has to cross the river Jordan Someone has to cross the river Jordan Someone has to find a way to save the day Let this be the hour to speak truth to power
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlum. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of the AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Today, I'm going to explore an issue a lot of people don't like to talk about, the troubling parallels and similarities between the AIDS chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment.
2: Six decades ago, indifference and injustice combined to begin to write one of the most shameful chapters in the history of American medicine. Of course, the infamous project called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. In 1932, America's Public Health Service set out to study syphilis, but it pursued this worthy goal in a manner that was irredeemably cruel. Several hundred African-American men, men the Public Health Service recruited at churches and clinics and farms were used in the study. Most of these men had syphilis, none of them knew their bodies harbored this disease. And then the Public Health Service followed the men's lives, watched how the disease developed, all the while withholding medicine, withholding treatment of any kind for these innocent American citizens. Medical professionals willingly, intentionally, let human beings suffer from a treatable, and then later a curable, illness. These researchers knew that mercury and arsenic compounds could treat the disease. But the Tuskegee men did not receive the medicine. Later, the researchers knew that penicillin could cure the disease. But again, the Tuskegee men did not get the medicine. They didn't get treated until the 40-year study was discovered and stopped amid public outcry in 1972. It was a disgraceful episode for American science. We feel the repercussions still. Tremors of distrust that have not yet disappeared. To this day, the Tuskegee study makes some Americans think twice about donating blood or taking their children for vaccinations or signing an organ donor card. But out of this sad incident, we can learn and we can find healing, and we can vow that such hideous episodes will never occur again. The relentless pursuit of scientific truth is a noble endeavor, but not so noble that it exempts us from our deeper obligations to be moral and just, to revere the sanctity of the lives of our fellow men and women. The ultimate purpose of science is to improve human lives. Science and technology can be powerful forces for good, and usually are. They've cured diseases, built economies, helped to narrow the distance of time and space. In the 21st century, as the march of new discoveries picks up even more speed, we must be vigilant about making certain science and technology always remain positive forces in American life. So today, the nation, under President Clinton's leadership and at his initiative, finally does the right and the honorable thing.
1: That was Al Gore on May 16, 1997, in the East Room of the White House where he was introducing President Bill Clinton, who was about to issue a formal apology for the infamous Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, which holds the record for being the longest non-therapeutic experiment in the history of medicine and human health. It spanned 40 years from 1932 to 1972. The study was conducted to determine the effect of untreated syphilis in black men. The men in the Tuskegee study were never told that they had syphilis, a sexually transmitted disease. The men were told they had bad blood, which was a term used back then to describe a wide range of unspecified illnesses. Ever since I read Bad Blood, the James Jones book on the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment, I have been struck by the disturbing parallels between the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment and the fraudulent epidemiology and science of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic. I've written a novella about these parallels which is called The Closing Argument and it is available on Amazon. It was published back in 2000. The Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment might never have ended when it did without the intervention of one man named Peter Buxton. In his book James Jones writes, Born in Prague, Czechoslovakia in September 1933, Buxton was brought to the United States as an infant on the eve of World War II by his Jewish father and Catholic mother who fled Europe to escape the Nazis. He was reared on a ranch in Oregon, later graduating from the University of Oregon with a major in political science. Following a hitch in the army where he received training as a psychiatric social worker, Buxton was hired as a venereal disease interviewer and investigator by the Public Health Service in San Francisco. Soon after going to work at the Hunt Street Clinic in San Francisco, Buxton heard the Tuskegee study discussed by co-workers one day at lunch. He had difficulty believing the stories. He said it didn't sound like what a public health service institution should be doing. Since he was required as part of his job to write a short paper on venereal disease or epidemiology every two months, Buxton decided to do his next assignment on the Tuskegee study and asked the Centers for Disease Control for reprints of articles that had been published on the experiment. When the copies arrived, he recalled, I went through them and was even more disturbed. The more he read, the more it became obvious that the subjects did not have much medical knowledge and did not know what was being done to them. That was what really stuck in my craw, he declared. According to James Jones, in early November 1966, Buxton sent Dr. William J. Brown, the director of the Division of Venereal Diseases, a letter expressing grave moral concerns about the experiment. He asked whether the purpose of the experiment was to obtain information on the syphilitic damage which these men were being allowed to endure. He also inquired if any of the men had been treated properly and whether any had been told the nature of the study. And finally, he asked, are untreated syphilitics being followed for autopsy? According to Jones, weeks passed and nothing broke the silence from the CDC. Dr. Brown drafted a two-page reply but never mailed it. Instead, he asked a colleague from the CDC who happened to be going to San Francisco over the Christmas holidays to drop by the Hunt Street Clinic and discuss the experiment with Buxton. According to Jones, the two men met and Buxton tried to explain his moral objections, all the while feeling that the visitor thought that he was a bit crazy. He was still somewhat puzzled, but said he would take my views back to Dr. Brown, Buxton recalled. A few months later, Buxton was invited to attend, at government expense, a conference on syphilis research at CDC. Once he arrived, however, it became clear that no provisions had been made for him to attend the sessions, and the real reason he had been brought to Atlanta was to discuss the Tuskegee study. Jones wrote that late in the afternoon Buxton was introduced to Dr. Brown who escorted him to an executive conference room with a big mahogany table surrounded by a dozen or so chairs. The room was large and very dignified in decor displaying an American flag and the Public Health Service flag on one end. In addition to Dr. Brown, Buxton encountered the emissary who had talked with him in San Francisco and Dr. John Cutler, a health officer with intimate knowledge of the study. Jones wrote that according to Buxton, Dr. Cutler began to harangue him the moment they were seated. He was infuriated, stated Buxton. He had obviously read my material, thought of me as some form of lunatic who needed immediate chastisement, and he proceeded to administer it. Jones wrote that Dr. Cutler then launched an impassioned defense of the experiment, stressing in particular how it would benefit physicians who were treating syphilitic blacks. Jones noted that Buxton was neither intimidated nor impressed. The men were not volunteers, Buxton insisted. They were nothing more than dupes and were being used as human substitutes for guinea pigs. According to Jones, Buxton stated that the Public Health Service had a duty to consider the moral implications of the study and suggested that legal advice be sought. Jones wrote that Buxton did not anticipate hearing from Atlanta immediately. Instead, he thought the health officers would take care of things in their own professional and bureaucratic way. Months passed and nothing happened. Two years later, Buxton was still troubled by the experiment, and he wrote a second letter to Dr. Brown. His letter warned That the issue was political dynamite, and that in 1968 it would be morally unethical to begin such a study, and that the study could be politically and journalistically explosive. According to Jones, this time Buxton got results. But the CDC only set up a blue ribbon panel to decide whether to continue the study. The panel decided to continue the study, to not treat the patients with the available treatment for syphilis. It was only because of the media that the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was ever shut down. Jones wrote that early in 1972, Buxton finally told his tale to someone who was willing to do more than listen politely, Edith Letterer, a longtime friend who worked as an international affairs reporter with the Associated Press in San Francisco. Letterer realized how big the story was and passed it on to a reporter named Gene Heller, who broke the story on July 25, 1972, in the Washington Star. So thanks to one man, one of the darkest chapters in American science and medicine came to an end. I've often thought about Peter Buxton throughout the AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome epidemic. I've even called him up and befriended him and tried to get him involved with what I see as a similar kind of science and medicine in the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, but he pretty much left me to my own devices. But in many ways, AIDS did have a Peter Buxton trying to expose the moral atrocities of the CDC and NIH for over three decades. For over three decades, the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic has been warning that gay men have not understood what is really happening to them, just like the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis study. For over three decades, the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic has warned that the gay community has not been told the truth about the AIDS epidemic, just like the victims of the Tuskegee study. For over three decades, the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic has been warning that everything the public knows about AIDS has been built upon an irrational foundation that should not be called science, just like the Tuskegee study. For three decades, the Peter Buxton of AIDS has warned that the mantra of do no harm has been turned upside down and public health has turned into public harm, just like the Tuskegee study. For three decades, the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic has been pilloried and harangued and called a lunatic by the infuriated powers that be for speaking his truth to power, just like the Peter Buxton of the Tuskegee study. But like the Peter Buxton of Tuskegee, the Peter Buxton of AIDS has persevered and continued to tell his truths to power, it, even though the scientific community constantly gave him the cold shoulder and did everything it could to try and destroy his reputation and career. Ladies and gentlemen, I
3: give you the Peter Buxton of AIDS. Well, what happened is, there is no new no, AIDS epidemic. Uh, it, As you will see, it is a lot of propaganda, but there is really no new general AIDS epidemic. It was said to be, when the virus was first discovered, to be a sexually transmitted virus that would spread like syphilis in the general population, provided, of course, they have sex, and there is circumstantial evidence that sex is still practiced in America. We are producing about four, four million for million babies. I have, of course, not, not, never done it since then, for that to be on the safe side. My friend Gallo told me, watch out, no contacts with anybody. <laughs> so now, so here's the rise, so I'm describing now, so from what I see now, as the rise and fall of the virus AIDS hypothesis. Uh, Is it already a chapter of scientific history, you may ask, and I will try to convince you indeed it is. As you will see, I think the answer is yes. Um, The origin of the virus hypothesis in 1984 was um, sensational a battery of four papers in science, and Gallo pointed out to me, we were good friends until then, now it's not so good anymore, because we the question them, but uh, that anybody, any scientist had a paper in science is already a triumph, it's the most popular American scientific journal, but four in the same issue, that was an absolute record, and so he said with this, with these papers, the mystery of the um, of the non-understood or misunderstood AIDS epidemic is solved, it's a virus and everything will be in order. We'll make a vaccine and antiviral drugs. And I would be rich and famous and get Nobel Prize too. I mean that's Gallo, I'm talking about him now. So science is the most prestigious journal. NIH is the most powerful institution in medical science in America and if not in the world. And The public press, above all the New York Times, had cultivated the propaganda that AIDS is a sexually transmitted disease with a spokesperson like Liz Taylor. We are all in this together. she probably was, but never got AIDS, huh? Luckily. And I am. But if you look even at that first paper that they published, you can see some critical flaws. And two of them I want to point out that are most critical here, Uh, the causal virus, as it is called in these papers, you see the virus is the primary cause of the epidemic, the primary cause. The causal virus was only found in less than 50% of Gallo's AIDS patients.
1: That was Peter Duisburg, the man who could be called the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic. He was speaking at the 2015 Conference of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. In an interview in his book, AIDS War, John Lauritsen wrote, Peter Duisberg came to the United States from Germany. He is a professor of molecular biology at the University of California in Berkeley. It is because of his interest in retroviruses, on which he is an authority, that he became involved in questioning the AIDS virus ideology. Duesberg deserves credit for being one of the first people to realize that the HIV-AIDS theory was an instance of what I refer to in my book, Yatra Genocide, as abnormal science. One of the wittiest men engaged in the AIDS issue, he often could find the humorous absurdities implicit in the HIV theory. When HIV was called a slow virus, he said, there are no slow viruses, only slow scientists. In public forums, he always presented his opinions in a collegial manner but he was capable of leaving his opponents hemorrhaging from a cutting sarcasm presented with deadly charm. It may have been the fact that he verbally earned the role of alpha intellect in any professional gathering that inspired both envy and vengeance from his powerful HIV establishment opponents. AIDS scientists were often simply intellectually outclassed, even if they held all the money and the political cards. But why hasn't Peter Duisburg gotten a Nobel Prize for his challenge to the HIV paradigm? Why hasn't he been celebrated by the White House and the media as the Peter Buxton of the AIDS epidemic? I wrestle with this question in my book called The Duisburgians, which you can read for free at charlesortlib.com. My argument is that Peter Duisburg got a lot of things right, but the things he got wrong have kept him from being recognized as the Peter Buxton of AIDS. He basically put three arguments on the table. The problem is that two of them were right, but the one point that was wrong has kept him from being perceived as the Peter Buxton of AIDS. His first argument was that HIV could not be the cause of AIDS. He based that on his analysis of the virus as one of the deans of molecular biology. His second argument that was based on the CDC's epidemiology was that AIDS could not be an infectious disease. He saw a disease that was confined to risk groups and was therefore not a contagious or transmissible STD. His third argument was that the toxic treatments for AIDS, which were all based on a mistaken theory of causation, endangered the lives of people diagnosed with AIDS, and even worse, could cause an immunological illness which looked a lot like AIDS. I think the fact that Peter was right about two out of these three arguments should earn him a Nobel Prize and every other award in science. But I think the fact that he was wrong about one of these points is the reason he is not widely acclaimed as the Peter Buxton of AIDS. You should know that I played a major role in getting Peter's ideas into the world. I put him on the cover of my newspaper New York Native a number of times, and I wrote editorials supporting his ideas and his right to speak his mind, even when I disagreed with him. The reporting in New York Native brought things to my attention that made me realize that Peter's argument that there was no contagious epidemic caused by a single agent was not correct. And being wrong about that one point kept Peter Duesberg from bringing AIDS down like a house of cards the way Peter Buxton ultimately brought down the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Peter Duisburg was so focused on debunking the cockamamie HIV science coming out of the CDC and NIH and the danger of the misguided toxic treatments being given to patients, that he didn't notice two big elements related to the AIDS epidemic that needed to be acknowledged and integrated into any corrective AIDS paradigm. The first was the discovery of a virus in AIDS patients called HHV-6. That very destructive DNA virus seemed to be capable of doing everything Dewsburg said HIV could not do. If you want to know more about that virus, go to my website, HHV6University. The other thing he ignored was the emergence of an AIDS-like epidemic called chronic fatigue syndrome, which turned out to be a lot more than just AIDS-like. A number of people, including a woman who worked with a scientist in Gallo's lab, have called chronic fatigue syndrome non-HIV AIDS or HIV-negative AIDS. Now, a scientist as brilliant as Duesberg surely could see the absurdity of accepting the idea that an HIV form of AIDS and an HIV-negative form of AIDS had broken out simultaneously. It's one of those things about which one just wants to say, hello. Millions of people, mostly heterosexuals, now have chronic fatigue syndrome or non-HIV AIDS. If Peter had joined forces with them in challenging the CDC's HIV paradigm, I really think we would now be calling Peter Duesberg the Peter Buxton of AIDS. Here is the testimony of an amazing, courageous woman with chronic fatigue syndrome or non-HIV AIDS given to the Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Advisory Committee meeting in Washington on June 14, 2012.
4: Hi, my name is Karen Lambert. Um, I'd like to dedicate this to the doctor who told me nine years ago that I had an irrational fear of diseases. He told me that nobody cared about me and that I should stop writing letters and stop fighting because the world does not care. I have chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome and non-HIV AIDS, idiopathic CD lymphocytopenia. With these two diagnoses, I believe I am living proof that the AIDS-like CFIDS is transmissible something that the medical establishment seems unable to admit or to acknowledge. I also believe I am living proof that CFIDS and non-HIV AIDS are basically the same immune disorder. Nine years ago, after a heterosexual sexual encounter, I became seriously ill with what looks like the natural disease progression of AIDS. After an acute infection and a period of asymptomatic health, albeit very short, I fell extremely ill to an unrelenting, progressively worsening AIDS-like demise. I can pinpoint exactly when I was infected with my chronic viral syndrome of unknown etiology. And because my acute infection stage was so distinguishable, I can also pinpoint when my undiagnosed pathogens left my body and infected yet another host. I am a link in a chain of sick people. Whatever I am currently dealing with, it strongly resembles classic textbook AIDS, but to add to my inquiry, I also clinically satisfy the CDC's criteria for a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. Increasingly, I've become concerned that my systemic diagnosis is caught up in the treacherous politics of CFIDS, ME, and AIDS. Most people would see CFIDS, and ME do not like to talk about the many symptoms and immune abnormalities that they share with AIDS patients. I also suspect most ailing patients would rather be told that they have the very mysterious CFS than to be told that they have AIDS. I have a master's degree. I was a director at my firm. I used to be a triathlete. I have never used IV drugs. I had never traveled abroad. I can count my sexual partners on two hands. I fall into no risk groups. Statistically speaking, I know my undiagnosed infectious and communicable disease is not rare. So you tell me, if they're not in the miscellaneous CFS bucket, where are all these other immunosuppressed people? Anyone with CFS who does not consider the possibility that CFIDs or ME will eventually progress to a non-HIV AIDS diagnosis is very well trumping their own ability to diagnose the root cause of their illness. Why isn't CFIDS and ME a reportable disease overseen by our public health department? Why are ME and CFS the same exact disorder categorized as two separate illnesses on a worldwide level by ICD codes? doesn't anyone else but me very clearly see the catastrophic cover-up going on? Why are we not reading about non-HIV AIDS cases and or the AIDS-like nature of CFS on the front pages of every newspaper in the world? And if CFS is non-HIV AIDS, then depending upon who you believe, there's anywhere between 500,000 and 28 million Americans out there with a transmissible illness. If that is what it is, our new form of AIDS dwarfs the original AIDS pandemic tenfold. Regardless of how politics may try to dissuade or delude you, all you need to know is that my idiopathic immune dysfunction is infectious, it is contagious, and it is spreading. I'm not afraid to say that I have AIDS without HIV, I'm equally as unafraid of saying the most obvious thing about CFS. It sure does look like AIDS to me. If it takes courage to think and to say the things that I do, I hope there will be a miraculous outbreak of bravery from coast to coast and across the pond. If people believe that HIV causes AIDS and that CFIDS could be caused by a retrovirus, Why couldn't CFIDS be caused by an undiagnosed strain of HIV? That's where I started my plight nine years ago, when I started writing letters. And I haven't stopped. It's nine years later and I still write letters. And I would like to know why CFIDS and AIDS are not looked at together as one illness.
1: Karen Lambert has been a voice crying in the wilderness for many years. I think she speaks for millions of people who are suffering because the CDC is unwilling to openly discuss the relationship between AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. Most of the voices out there talking about chronic fatigue syndrome belong to white heterosexuals. I think I am the first person to use the words AIDS, chronic fatigue syndrome, apartheid to describe the political separation of the two illnesses. If the real epidemic could be likened to a bus The chronic fatigue syndrome patients are sitting in the front and the people diagnosed with AIDS are sitting in the back. And believe me, nobody on that bus is being told the truth about what is going on. Everyone on that bus is denied biomedical respect, dignity, and equality. It's too bad that Peter joined the CDC in keeping the obsessive focus of their thinking on gay men. If he had looked in his own backyard, he might have seen all the white heterosexuals with non-HIV AIDS like Karen Lambert. He might have successfully blown the whistle, just like Peter Buxton. Instead, he keeps harping on the fact that there is no real HIV-AIDS epidemic in the heterosexual community.
3: There is ever anywhere the heterosexual couple, couple, say, 20, 30 years old with two or three kids who are dying from AIDS. Nothing is to be found there. Well, you always find one or two cases in 300 million that you can hype up, and that's what the National, uh, what the New York Times and these channels are doing.
1: As I have written in my book, The Duisbergians, if Peter Duisberg wants to know where the heterosexual cases of AIDS are, all he has to do is look at the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic. If Peter Duisberg looked closely at the damaged immune systems of chronic fatigue syndrome patients, I think he would see his heterosexual AIDS epidemic. He would also see the King Kong of AIDS viruses, HHV-6, the virus that the CDC and NIH don't like to talk about. The virus I also call the Fifty Shades of AIDS virus. All he would have to say publicly is that chronic fatigue syndrome and HHV-6 pull a rug out from under the whole AIDS paradigm, but that is a bridge too far for the scientist who could be the Peter Buxton of AIDS. One wonders how Peter Duesberg would advise doctors treating all the chronic fatigue syndrome cases that broke out at the same time as AIDS and have all the hallmarks of AIDS. In many ways, the doctors who struggle every day to deal with patients with chronic fatigue syndrome are also victims of the kind of unethical and deceptive science that characterized the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Here's one of those doctors, Dr. Andreas Kogelnick, talking to two interviewers about the illness on a TV show called View from a Bay
3: probably know these symptoms. Severe fatigue, memory loss, extreme joint pain. These may be signs of something more serious. And here to tell us about a debilitating disease that affects millions of Americans is a specialist in infectious diseases, and he's also the director of the Open Medicine Institute. Please welcome Dr. Andreas Kogelnik. Here, here. Hey, Doctor.
5: Thank welcome. you so much for
3: being here. So tell us about this disease, chronic fatigue syndrome.
5: Yeah, it's it's a difficult one because it's there's not great ways to diagnose it and we haven't until recently have have great ways to treat it either so it's been a little bit of a medical mystery uh, so Mm -hmm. to speak
2: does it tend to get to a fairly advanced stage before it's diagnosed is that the problem it's
5: pretty variable part of the problem is that there's these overlapping symptoms that are very general in context like you you said fever joint pain swelling uh lymph nodes uh, sort of flu-like symptoms that are maybe sort of the worst flu you've had. Oh
3: mm-hmm. my goodness. So, you know, what, the way what you say, chronic fatigue syndrome, it just sounds like you're tired, but it's actually much more serious than that.
5: That's right. I mean, th- these are symptoms that go on for, for months and even years at a time. Uh, people can be bedridden uh, all the way to, you know, losing their jobs, being becoming disabled. Uh, and and the, the CDC definition of it is a minimum of six months of the, some of the symptoms that you described. Minimum of that. six months. Hey. So,
2: who is most at risk?
5: Well, that's a great question. We, the, the population studies that have been done by the CDC and others haven't really figured that out yet directly. But uh, what we think is that there's some, some viral uh, triggers that are, are going around that have been doing this for, for many years. And, and that really puts all of us at risk to a certain extent. But, so is it
3: like contagious, you mm-hmm. think?
5: Uh, there's a, f- a, f- a factor of that in there, certainly.
3: Okay. And what about kids? There are some suspicions that kids are diagnosed, but they don't know they have it.
5: Yeah, we have a, uh, our age ranges for patients range from about two years old all the way up into the 70s. And there's some estimates that are saying that one in 500 kids, school-age kids, are out of school and missing school because of this disease. You, oh. you mentioned something about the viral strains going around. What, what Do we know what the causes are? Well, we don't exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. There's been a lot of implication around uh, some of the various herpes viruses, so Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mononucleosis, herpes 1 and 2, uh, uh, cytomegalovirus, and then a, a host of other uh, diseases as well, including uh, uh, parvovirus and some bacteria as so well. So is
3: it like all attacking your body at once or something? Well,
5: the thought is there's some some changes in your immune system that are happening, either because of these organisms or because of other other uh, pathogens that are out
3: there. Right. Do you think it's preventable?
5: That's a great question. I don't think we know.
1: One of the big questions about transmissible and contagious illnesses is whether doctors, nurses, and researchers can contract it in hospitals and laboratories. Here's what Peter Duisberg has to say about the transmission of AIDS to and among healthcare workers.
3: For those who are still quite, uh, uh, holding uh, belief that maybe HIV isn't uh, is, is infectious or AIDS is infectious after, after all, look at these rather and rather convincing statistics. Now, note: one doctor on earth has ever contracted AIDS, not HIV. They say HIV is sometimes transmitted by needle sticks and blood transfusions. But there's not one case in the professional literature that a doctor on Earth has ever contracted AIDS from a million AIDS patients which they have treated up to 2009. And it continues to be that way. You would see it you would not see the end of it. It would be in the headlines. Oh, doctor, self fighting in the front lines against AIDS is dying from the disease. Not one such case. New York Times would would, would dedicate two issues to it. And there is no and yet. There is no vaccine there. If we had a vaccine, we could say, oh, the doctors are protected. The risk is at least low. But nothing. No, they have the same risk as everybody else. Thousand doctors, by contrast, per year get uh, hepatitis, serum hepatitis, from treating junkies and AIDS patients and all other people by accidental needle sticks or coughing or huffing or feeling or whatever they have to do with their patients.
1: Peter Duesberg may seem to be making an effective point about doctors and nurses not getting AIDS at the rate one would expect from an illness that is transmitted the way HIV supposedly is, but all bets are off if non-HIV AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome are factored in. The AIDS epidemic Peter Duesberg finds missing in healthcare workers may be found in the epidemic of non-HIV AIDS or chronic fatigue syndrome in doctors or nurses. In her 1993 book on chronic fatigue syndrome, America's biggest cover-up, Nina Ostrom writes: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention received so many calls from doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers stating that they had developed chronic fatigue syndrome that a study of chronic fatigue syndrome in that risk group was planned for 1991 to 1992, as documents received under Freedom of Information Act show. That study of the incidence of chronic fatigue syndrome among healthcare workers, however, was never carried out. The explanation of the study, which was included in financial projections for the CDC's fiscal year 1991 and 92, states in part CDC has received a significant number of calls and letters from physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers reporting that they, and in many cases, other members of their families, are suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome. CDC plans to conduct a nationwide study of chronic fatigue syndrome in healthcare providers to determine the prevalence of the illness, its characteristics, and associated exposure factors. Nina Ostrom also wrote, I have interviewed a surprising number of physicians who have chronic fatigue syndrome, and in most instances, they have reported being just as badly treated by their own profession as other chronic fatigue syndrome patients. Physicians who develop chronic fatigue syndrome are shocked, I have found, that their colleagues do not take their illness seriously. Like other CFS patients, physician patients often find that they have to consult numerous doctors before they find someone who is knowledgeable about chronic fatigue syndrome. If Peter Duisburg won't play the role of Peter Buxton and cogently expose the kind of fraud and deceit that make AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome resemble the worst aspects Of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, hopefully someone else will. Maybe we'll just have to be grateful to Peter Duesberg for opening our eyes to the fact that something was rotten in Denmark. Oh, and here is that formal apology for the Tuskegee syphilis experiment from President Bill Clinton.
6: Medical people are supposed to help when we need care, but even once a cure was discovered, they were denied help and they were lied to by their government. Our government is supposed to protect the rights of its citizens. Their rights were trampled upon. Forty years, hundreds of men betrayed, along with their wives and children, along with the community in Macon County, Alabama, the city of Tuskegee, the fine university there, and the larger African-American community. The United States government did something that was wrong, deeply, profoundly, morally wrong. It was an outrage to our commitment to integrity and equality for all our citizens. To the survivors, to the wives and family members, the children and the grandchildren, I say what you know. No power on earth can give you back the lives lost, the pain suffered, the years of internal torment and anguish. What was done cannot be undone. But we can in the silence. We can stop turning our heads away. We can look at you in the eye. And finally say, on behalf of the American people, what the United States government did was shameful. And I am sorry. The American people are sorry for the loss, for the years of hurt, You did nothing wrong, but you were grievously wronged. I apologize and I am sorry that this apology has been so long in coming. To Macon County, to Tuskegee, To the doctors who have been wrongly associated with the events there, you have our apology as well. To our African-American citizens, I am sorry that your federal government orchestrated a study so clearly racist. That can never be allowed to happen again. It is against everything our country stands for, and what we must stand against is what it was. So let us resolve to hold forever in our hearts and minds the memory of a time not long ago in Macon County, Alabama, so that we can always see how adrift we can become when the rights of any citizens are neglected, ignored, and betrayed. And let us resolve here and now to move forward together. The legacy of the study at Tuskegee has reached far and deep in ways that hurt our progress and divide our nation. We cannot be one America when a whole segment of our nation has no trust in America. An apology is the first step and we take it with a commitment to rebuild that broken trust. We can begin by making sure there is never again another episode like this one. We need to do more to ensure that medical research practices are sound and ethical and that researchers work more closely with communities. If Peter
1: Duesberg or someone like him is ultimately as successful as Peter Buxton, perhaps we will one day hear the President of the United States admit to a world audience that people with AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome were denied the real help they needed and they were lied to by their government. Maybe the president will say that their rights were trampled upon and that for decades millions of men and women who were told that they had AIDS or chronic fatigue syndrome were betrayed along with their spouses and children. And not just one city in America, but every city and town in America. In fact, all over the world because the AIDS paradigm that Peter Duisburg and others have challenged has been exported. The phony bifurcated AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome paradigm was made in America. Unfortunately, you could say that AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome fraud are now America's biggest export. It's like a defective part that is now part of the science of every country. It's science's corrupted hard drive. Maybe, like Clinton, a future president will say that the United States government did something that was deeply profoundly morally wrong. Maybe the president will say to victims of AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome that the American people are sorry for what the Centers for Disease Control has done to the victims, for the losses of life and the years of hurt and confusion. Maybe a future president will have to discuss the racism involved in the political separation of AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome into two different epidemics. Maybe the president will have to apologize to all the people in the black community who have raised questions in the past, all the people who are called denialists and threats to public health for merely questioning the conventional wisdom about AIDS.
0: So those who don't know what happened the Tuskegee experiments, they
2: did purposely give black men
1: syphilis. They did. We go down a line where stuff like this happened to African-American people. So I don't put anything past American government when it comes to people of color in this country. I'm sorry. That was Spike Lee talking to Bill Maher about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. In the February 8, 1993 issue of my newspaper, New York Native, I wrote this editorial about Nat Hentoff's attack on the black filmmaker. Nat Hentoff is one of the best defenders of the Constitution writing today. That's the good news. The bad news is that in a January 22nd 1993 Village Voice column he attacked Spike Lee for his AIDS conspiracy theory. One of the trendiest ways to question another person's sanity and credibility these days is to suggest that he or she is a conspiracy theorist. According to Hentoff, Spike Lee said, AIDS is a government-engineered disease. We think Spike Lee is probably wrong about this, but we think he is entitled to say whatever he wants to say. While it is clear that there is major lying going on about the AIDS epidemic, we think that the theory that AIDS is caused by a carefully engineered virus that could only affect certain groups is disproven by the rather clear evidence that AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome are the same basic disease. When white heterosexuals get AIDS it is called chronic fatigue syndrome. They are not stigmatized or criminalized like non-whites or gays who when they get chronic fatigue syndrome are told they have AIDS and are a danger to society and should take AZT. If concerned black artists and intellectuals who sensed that something just wasn't right about AIDS had focused on the way the government was separating AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome, they might have been able to wake the whole nation up to what was going on. Another black leader who was attacked unmercifully for questioning the AIDS dogma was Tabo Mbeke, the president of South Africa. On November 4th, 2001, the New York Times ran this editorial, and I quote, Tabo Mbeki's views on AIDS have drawn so much criticism that he has lately kept them to himself. Last month, however... The South African president gave two speeches that showed he remains badly misinformed about a virus that now infects one in four adult South Africans and will kill between five and seven million over the next decade, the vast majority of them poor black people. Mr. Mbeki downplayed the problem, exaggerated the toxicity of antiretroviral drugs, and suggested that advocates for treating the disease are racist. South Africa, with a medical infrastructure capable of providing antiretrovirals, should be a global leader in AIDS treatment. Yet even though thousands of affluent South Africans buy these drugs, the government has done nothing to make them available to the poor. It has not accepted international offers of free or low-cost medication and runs only a few programs to cut mother-to-child transmission. Meanwhile, Mr. Mbeki has appointed scientists to government panels who do not believe that HIV causes AIDS. In August, he used old statistics to argue that AIDS is only the 12th leading killer in South Africa. It is actually number one, and asked health officials to reassess the budget accordingly. It is hard to understand how Mr. Mbeki, a reformer in many other ways, can be so irresponsible about AIDS. His misunderstanding seems to be rooted in a defensiveness about race. In one speech, he said that those advocating AIDS treatment viewed black people as, quote, germ carriers and human beings of a lower order. Many politicians in Mr. Mbeki's African National Congress disagree with him, but virtually none speak out publicly, a testament to Mr. Mbeki's unhealthy level of control. Even Nelson Mandela seems reluctant to challenge him on this issue. Mr. Mbeki came to politics after a lifetime of fighting white rule in South Africa. Though it is hard to imagine a more malignant evil than apartheid, AIDS has already taken more South African lives. If Mr. Mbeki does not begin to address the crisis, millions more deaths will follow. The New York Times has yet to do a serious article on the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic and its threat to public health. The New York Times has made a sport of denouncing anyone who questions the AIDS dogma. Virtually none of the coverage of AIDS at the New York Times in 36 years constitute what could be called investigative reporting. You could almost say that the New York Times acts as a department of the Centers for Disease Control. They are a conveyor belt for everything the CDC wants the public to know about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome as well as what the CDC does not want the public to know about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. On the day that the President of the United States has to apologize to Peter Duisburg and all the people who asked questions about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome, the New York Times will also have some serious apologizing to do. The books mentioned on the show today include Bad Blood by James Jones, The AIDS War* by John Lauritsen, and America's Biggest Cover-Up by Nina Ostrom. They're all available at Amazon. And Peter Duisburg's fascinating book, Inventing the AIDS Virus, is also available on Amazon. You can read my book, The Duisburgians, for free at charlesortleb.com. That's Charles, B.com. There you can find information about all my books, including Truth to Power, My History of the AIDS and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Epidemic. You may also want to check out my novella, The Closing Argument, which uses a courtroom showdown to focus on the racial politics of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. You may also want to take a look at my book, Yatra Genocide, which is my attempt to outline a political philosophy of epidemiology and science to better understand what I have often called an epidemic of lies. It seems appropriate to end a show about AIDS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment with a song called Written in Blood. I wrote it with Chris Davidson. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services.
0: All my children, our story was written in blood. My story was written in blood We lived in a time when evil rushed in like a flood The tiniest joy was nipped in the bud Please tell our children to tell their children tell their children Our story was written in blood Our story was written in blood You were born when being alive Seemed like some kind of curse Everything went wrong Could always Get worse Many terrible things Happened That I so much Wanted to hide I prayed and prayed That the darkness Destroy your pride Oh my children Our story Was written in blood Our story Was written in blood We lived in a time When evil rushed in Like a flood Tiniest joy Was nipped in the bud Please tell our children To tell their children To tell their children Our story Was written in blood Our story Was written in blood Road of escape Was hidden from our view Hope and opportunity were Constantly stolen from me and you While the weak fell by the wayside To give up the fight There was always something within us That knew we were right Oh my children Our story Was written in blood Our story was written in blood. We lived in a time when evil rushed in like a flood. The tiniest joy was nipped in the bud. Please tell our children to tell their children to tell their children. Our story was written in blood Our story was written in blood